And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, Tuesday as we uh, enter into a shortened holiday trading week. Of course, yesterday, Labor Day. Everybody was off yesterday. Brent, did you get rain yesterday? We got, Brent did not get rain yesterday, by the way. We got a torrential thunderstorm yesterday. It was, it was great. About mid-afternoon, it was literally just pouring down rain in, on my house. I don't know how far it went, but we got rain. <laughs> so, well, congratulations. <laughs> congratulations, we got rain. So it was actually quite surprising. Temperature came down a little bit, so yeah. it was nice. That's it for the week, too. It, it, probably. So, but at least there was some rain. Um, outside of that, though, it was really a pretty quiet weekend. Not a lot of stuff going on. Uh, got a few things to get into today in, in terms of, you know, kind of what's driving the markets and can that continue. And we'll, we'll discuss that a, a little bit more as we go. Of course, uh, as we enter the month of September, September tends to be one of the weaker months of the year, but you have to take that with a little kind of grain of salt because as we've talked about before, for some reason, all the bad stuff happens in September, right? So the crash of 29, uh, you had you know uh, the Lehman crisis back in 2008. For some reason, September just to kind of tends to be the home where things just kind of fall apart. Um, so if you strip those kind of events out, right, those more magnificent events, September isn't as bad as the statistics say. So assuming, assuming we can avoid a major occurrence this month of some sort, a, a Lehman moment, so to speak, um, September will probably be flattish around there. Um, again, it's, it's a little bit weaker month. Uh, Europe is closed for the most part. A lot of trading uh, slows down in the month of September. So again, things are just going to be a little bit softer this month. And that's probably going to lead us to a little bit more sloppy trading action as we kind of go along. Um, you know, but, but those are just kind of the, the seasonal statistics. You know, from one month to the next, the markets can deviate from what seasonality says and what long-term averages say. That's why it's called an average, right? On average, this has happened. That means that sometimes it was better, sometimes it was a lot worse. Sometimes September was positive, sometimes you had a Lehman moment, right? So again, it's those averages that we want to take a look at. Again, doesn't mean September has to be a bad month, but typically, like I said, September tends to be a little bit more sloppy, and we've got some uh, more economic news. Now, Friday, we had the employment report that came out. Um, a little bit better than expected. Downward revisions to the previous months, though. Uh, so employment growth definitely slowing in the U.S. In fact, the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.8%. And that increase in the unemployment rate is kind of starting to track along with what the Fed wants, which is higher rates of unemployment to help bring down inflation. Again, how do we get inflation down? We get inflation down by slowing economic demand. How do we get people to stop spending money in the economy? get them out of a job, right? If they don't have money to spend, they can't spend the economy, economy slows down, prices fall, reduced inflation. So that's just unfortunately how it works. It's not great for the people that lose their job. Again, that's always the difference between a recession and a depression. Recession's when your neighbor loses his job, depression's when you lose yours. Um, but that's the function of what monetary policy does. And monetary policy continues to remain very tight right now. Um, higher interest rates, inflation costs are higher, no doubt about that. Over the weekend, I was uh, 
watching a video of a guy that went to Costco and he bought a whole big box of these popcorn snacks that are put out by Frito-Lay. And uh, he was cutting the bags open and emptying them into a bowl. And after about 15 bags into the bowl, he may have had 20, 25 kernels of corn, right? So, uh, in fact, one bag that he opened had one popcorn in it. <laughs> so, you know, talk about shrinkflation. It's getting a little bit out of control now. But, you know, higher cost, lower, <laughs> lower product amounts, that ultimately leads to less consumer spending. So, again, this is, this is all the function of what we're dealing with at the moment. But again, as, as we start, we get the inflation report out this week. So we'll see what the next gauge of kind of the next read on inflation is. Of course, everybody will be trying to peg into what does that mean for the Fed. Uh, really, at this point, nothing for the Fed to do, uh, you know, for right now. Policy's tight. Will they hike rates again? There's about a 50-50 split right now on whether or not they'll hike rates one more time. But we're probably closer to the end of rate hikes than not. So now it's a function of the weight, right? We have to wait for the impact of those higher rates, higher mortgage rates, higher auto loans, higher credit card rates, all those type of rates, you know, have to wait for that to come in. Then of course, don't forget that student loan repayments restarted yesterday. So the, fr so the first payment will be due in October. So again, all those people that own student loans now gonna have to start making payments as well. That's another detraction from consumer spending. So we'll see what happens with inflation, with economic growth, all that. Uh, coming ahead. Okay, so here's what you need to know before the bell this morning. Like I said, month of September officially kicking off. Uh, Friday, market rallied, um, had a little bit of a green day, so that was good news. Uh, market's doing okay. Again, this kind of upward trend over the last couple of weeks remains firmly intact. Uh, we had sold off about 5% in July going through August, and we've been rallying really since the end of August uh, and, and now setting up into coming into the 1st of September. This will be the first, you know, even though Friday was the first day of September, this will be the official kind of first trading day of the month since we're just having a, a kind of a holiday shortened week. Next week, uh, people will get serious about it. But again, markets trending positively here. Absolutely nothing to worry about at the moment. Buy signal in place. Markets are, are starting to get a little bit overbought short term, but not egregiously so. So again, you know, wouldn't be surprising. Futures pointing to a little bit of a weak open this morning. S&P down about 10 points as, as, as we're talking about this right now. Uh, but, you know, again, that we've had a nice little rally here, a little bit of a pullback, not surprising. The 50-day is, you know, sitting above the 20-day moving average. So there's two levels of support right here around 44.50. So if the market gets a little bit of a pullback, that'd actually be okay. That'd actually be a little bit healthy. Work off some of this kind of short-term, you know, minorly overbought condition, allow you a better entry point to add some money to, to portfolios as needed. Again, market's done nothing wrong here. The bullish trend remains firmly intact, um, you know, despite a lot of really negative headlines that have been coming out over the last week or so. There's really, the market isn't telling you anything negative at all. And, and again, it's just really kind of making a healthy advance here. We have these rallies that come back to test support. It's exactly what you kind of want to see in a market. So again, nothing really overly concerning here. Is there stuff to worry about longer term? Absolutely, right? Economic growth is weakening, inflation, interest rates, all those type of things, certainly reasons to worry as we get into 2024. But as of right now, this week, right? And we're talking about just trading portfolios right now. For this week, there's really not a whole lot to worry about. So again, um, you use pullbacks here as an opportunity to increase exposure if you need it. If you've got positions you've been looking for an opportunity to get out of, uh, this rally here is a good opportunity to do that. So again, you know, kind of rebalance the risk in your portfolios. 
uh, kind of work around the edges as you need, look for opportunities where you want to increase exposure. Uh, again, money continues to hide in those mega cap stocks. That was a subject we talked about in this weekend's newsletter. So if you haven't been to the website yet, realinvestmentadvice.com, click on our newsletter link, read this weekend's newsletter. Um, we're going to kind of touch on that a little bit more this morning. Uh, the article for today on our website for our, our Tuesday take is talking about these mega seven stocks that have been driving the markets. Can they continue to indefinitely just lead the markets? We're going to talk about that. But this morning, that's probably where money is going to be hiding again. And it's just a function of liquidity and safety. So this market continues to be primarily dominated by those large cap stocks. Small and mid caps, as we talked about last week, continue to really underperform here. So be careful where you're allocating capital as well. Because again, while mid caps have been performing a little bit last week, it's certainly not surprising um, over the course of the last couple of years, in particular, not really a whole lot going on here. So just kind of pay attention to where you're allocating capital as well as just how much capital you have allocated. That's what you need to know before the bell this morning. When we come back, um, we will pick up with talking a little bit more about these mega cap stocks. Can they last as being the leaders of the markets indefinitely? Don't go away. More of the Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Welcome back to the show this morning. So yeah, so talk a little bit about, you know, kind of these uh, mega cap stocks. And again, this has really kind of been, you know, I don't want to use the word conundrum because it's not really a conundrum at all. A conundrum is when people can't figure something out. Um, we know why mega cap stocks continue to, to lead the charge this year for the most part. Um, but, you know, it's worth going through, you know, kind of behind the obvious and looking at the uh, maybe another driver of why money continues to hide in just a handful of stocks in the markets. And this has been, you know, again, some of this is rather obvious, and we've talked about this, you know, before here on the show. But uh, again, there's reasons why certain things happen, and we have to understand why those reasons, you know, what those reasons are so we can determine whether or not those trends of whatever they are are sustainable. Is this a new paradigm, so to speak? Or is this a temporary issue that resolves itself um, at some point down the road as markets kind of reverse? Uh, and again, you know, you know, if we look at a chart of the S&P 500 versus the S&P 500 equal weight, and again, what's the difference between these two indexes? Well, uh, the S&P 500 is market cap weighted. So the stocks with the largest market capitalization, think about Apple, Microsoft, you know, Apple, $3 trillion company, right? Microsoft, Google, Amazon. These companies, because of their market capitalization, make up a very big chunk of the index. And we'll talk about why that's important here in just a second. So the equal weighted index is just looking at these stocks on an equal weighted basis where market cap doesn't make a difference. And you can see now, look, the, the, even in the equal weight index, right, those top stocks, right, that are, you know, getting all the money flows, they're going to lift the index because they're part of the index. But you can see the gap 
that exists currently between the market cap and the equal weight index. And that's a function of those seven stocks, you know, uh, rising uh, relative to the rest of the market. And so we've talked about before, if you kind of stripped out those seven stocks um, from the index, and again, if we kind of, and again, and again, when we talk about sectors of the markets, right, we talk about technology, communications, discretionary, look at, look at what stocks make up predominantly the biggest chunks of those sectors, technology sector, obviously, Apple, Microsoft, Google, over in the communication space makes up predominantly most of communications. Uh, discretionary is Amazon, Tesla. Right, so, so these stocks make up big, big chunks, meta, make up big chunks of these three sectors. And again, so as we, t we talk about, if you, if you take a look at the performance of the market this year, it's these three sectors that drive the market. Strip those stocks out of the indexes. Indexes really aren't up that much this year. So it's, it's, it's pretty much a, a, a real kind of bifurcation of the markets between these few stocks and everything else. So if you own a portfolio of 20, 25 stocks, right, and you own an equal weighted portion of each of these stocks, then you're vastly underperforming the market this year. That's just a function. In fact, a lot of portfolio, most portfolio managers are underperforming the index this year because of this bifurcation in the markets. Most, most portfolio managers don't own just seven stocks, right? That's how you beat the index this year. But again, that's just, you know, this isn't surprising. We know all this, but the, the question becomes, why is this happening, right? And this is a function of two things, and we'll talk about them. One is ETFs and passive investing, which have just the, the, the amount of money that has flowed into passive indexes and passive ETFs. Um, is just uh, you know astonishing, and this is not. The, and when you say the word passive, right, it, it's really a misnomer. ETFs aren't passive, right? The the index, the ETF itself is passive, right? It owns a basket of stocks and it doesn't do anything with it. Okay, just holds the stock, so it's passive. But investors aren't using ETFs as passive vehicles. Most investors are not just buying an ETF and sitting on it, and not ever touching it again, right? They're not being passive. In most cases, instead of just picking individual stocks, they're buying a basket of ETFs to just represent, you know, I, I don't know what stocks to buy in the tech sector, so I'm just going to buy the whole sector, right? I don't know what AI stock to buy is, so I'll just buy the whole sector of technology. But as soon as that trade is over or changes or money moves somewhere else in the market, they sell that index and move somewhere else. They're active. They're just using ETFs as a different form of active investing versus buying individual stocks. But again, the, the flow of money into these ETFs is important to understand because this is one of the two reasons why these mega cap stocks continue to outperform. And that's because, as we've talked about before, when you take a look at the top 10 market capitalization weighted stocks in the index, they make up 32% of the index just in market cap. So the, the important part about this is that for every dollar that gets put into an uh, an ETF, an S&P 500 ETF, right, or Vanguard S&P 500 index mutual fund, right, I'm going to be a passive investor, 32 cents of that dollar invested goes into these top 10 stocks because of the market cap weighting. So they just absorb. So the more money that goes into the ETFs, the more money these stocks absorb. There's 343 ETFs right now that own Apple. So whenever somebody buys one of those ETFs, 
money goes into Apple. So just a tremendous amount of, of capital being pushed in there. But there's another reason outside of the passive indexing effect as to why these mega cap companies continue to absorb so much liquidity. And, is, and, 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 and the function of that is actually liquidity. So you're a little bit ahead of me, Brent. <clears throat> so the point is, is that Brent, Brent's, Brent's a little finger happy this morning. So <laughs> chart, click, go. <laughs> but when I'm investing money, and let's say that I'm a pension fund out in California, I'm CalPERS, or I'm a, a big hedge fund, I run you know billions of dollars under management. I have to have that money invested, right? I can't have money sitting in cash. So that money has to be invested, and that's part of my mandate as an invest, as as you know, a mutual fund. I've got to have 95% of my money invested. That's my mandate in terms of the mutual fund, etc. So this money has to be invested somewhere. So as a, as a manager, what I'm looking for is, I've, hey, i got to put a billion dollars of capital to work. Where am I going to do it? I'm going to put it in the safest stocks I can where I can buy a billion dollars worth of shares and then I can sell a billion dollars worth of shares like that and doesn't move the price. If I try to put a billion dollars of money into a small cap company, I'm going to drive the price through the move. And if I try to sell it, I'm going to, I'm going to bankrupt the stock like immediately. Right. So it's, it's so liquidity becomes a, an issue. Well, now you can't, you know, again, I got to put money to work and all things being equal. There's really no no big difference between buying a small or a mid cap company. If everything in the world is doing OK. Right. Then I want to put money into small and mid cap companies because I have a potentially bigger potential. Those are small and mid cap companies growing up to be large cap companies. So. I should want to buy those companies, particularly in an economic recovery. Small and mid-cap companies should do better. But, see, that's not the case right now. And now for the chart, Brent. In fact, if we look at interest coverage ratios of companies between the Russell 2000 and the top 10 mega-cap stocks of the S&P 500, the smaller companies, small, mid-cap, Russell 2000, they have declining interest coverage ratios at very low levels. In other words, the risk of bankruptcy or them unable to pay their debts, right? They don't have enough capital to cover their, their debts is much greater than what I have in those mega cap stocks. So outside of just easy in, easy out liquidity of these big mega cap companies, I also run the risk of potentially having a company in my portfolio that goes bankrupt. Now, why would a company go bankrupt? Right, Un unexpectedly, so to speak. Well, again, these companies don't have a lot of capital on hand. They don't have a lot of access to the credit market. It's not like Apple does. If Apple wants to go to the to, to the market and raise capital for that, no problem. They get great terms, and basically, Apple doesn't need it anyway. So <laughs> they've got you know a hundred billion dollars in cash. They really don't need the debt. But small companies need the debt. In fact, a lot of these small and mid-cap companies, they have a lot of debt coming due in 2024, 2025 that are going to have to be refinanced. And this is one of the big risks to these small and mid-cap companies. Again, another reason I don't want money sitting there 
is because if these companies are already short on capital for doing interest coverage and then they have to refinance debt at a much higher rate or they're having what we call zombie companies and about 40% of the of, of the Russell 2000 or, or zombie companies, these are companies that have to issue debt just to stay in business. That becomes a problem. If there's an economic downturn or recession, bankruptcies are going to rise. In fact, as we talked about a little bit last week, bankruptcies are up about 71% on a year-over-year -year basis. Now, again, yeah, that's a little bit deceiving, right? When you say, well, bankruptcy is up 71%, that's a huge jump. Well, again, if we had zero bankruptcies last year, one bankruptcy this year, you're up 100%. Okay, so, so the point is, is that even though bankruptcies are up 71%, they were coming off a low level of bankruptcies, A, but they are increasing, and with interest rates at very high levels, low interest coverage, that potential risk increases. So again, when we start talking about why these mega cap companies continue to dominate the markets and will likely continue to dominate markets here for a while longer, is that risk of an economic slowdown recession? I've got, it doesn't mean these stocks can't go down. They will. We have a recession. These stocks are coming down. Valuations are an issue. But for managers, the reason, the explanation of why this has been such a weird year of these seven stocks having such huge gains. After last year, remember, everybody hated them last year. Nobody wanted to own these stocks. Now everybody wants them. Liquidity, safety. All right, be right back after the break. Don't go away. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com and welcome back to the show this morning so Why is every time I want to walk into something? I need a password. <laughs> Let's get a little bit out of hand here. So, interestingly enough, uh, Biden administration recently talked about how they reduced the deficit, and, and there is definitely clear evidence the deficit, the deficit declined following the extraordinarily high rates of spending in 2020, 2021, as we were injecting $5 trillion into the economy. Well, we didn't renew that spending, so the spending as a function declined, right? The deficit declined because we didn't renew that spending. However, the deficit is now increasing at a rather rapid pace. In fact, the deficit has doubled um, here recently because of all the spending that we're doing at $1.7 trillion in the Inflation Reduction Act, et cetera, which is all explaining why we haven't had a recession yet. Everybody's been scratching their head. Why aren't we having a recession? Why is the recession here? Everything says we're going to have a recession, right? All these indicators. And, and again, as we've talked about before, there's a tremendous lag effect going on that's more exacerbated than normal because even though the Fed is hiking interest rates to tighten monetary policy to slow economic growth, which in theory causes a recession, 
you've had all this other spending from the Inflation Reduction Act still hitting the economy. Plus, you've had all these other programs where, you know, moratoriums on student loan payments and moratoriums on rent and everything else. And we had all these, uh, you know, child tax credit programs that didn't end until December of last year. So there's been just a lot of support for the economy over the last couple of years that have given people more money to spend, which is keeping the economy going at a time where the Fed is hiking interest rates. And so this has been a conundrum, right? So where's the recession? Well, it's, it's coming, right? It's just going to take longer to get here because of all that liquidity. But that liquidity is coming out of the markets. But importantly, you know, the deficit has exploded. It's, it's, I'm just going to reach you from the Wall Street Journal this morning. This is you know stuff that we've written about numerous times, but this was just the latest from the Wall Street Journal. Always like it when, you know, somebody like the Wall Street Journal picks up the, the logic. The deficit has exploded more than doubling in the first 10 months of the fiscal year compared with the same period last year. Such a surge typically could be expected to stimulate growth and in turn inflation. But inflation has steadily dropped over the same period. That mismatch is a reminder, and here's the key sentence, that wider deficits don't always lead to higher inflation, a potentially important lesson as the gap between spending and revenue grows in the future. And the reason lies in the function of the deficit. Or in other words, what are you spending the money on that's creating the deficit? Most often when the gap widens, and that gaps between spending and revenue. It's because Congress has approved a big spending package, um, tax cuts, something like that, right? Which typically leads to a pickup in economic activity. Um, again, during the heights of the COVID pandemic, we sent $5 trillion in checks to households, right? So obviously had a big surge in economic activity when you gave people money to spend directly. Um, and as being good citizens, you know, we got free money, we didn't save the free money. <laughs> we spent the free money. So you got to pick up an economic activity. And of course, when you had a lot, a big surge in economic demand at a time when you had cut off supply, you get inflation. That kind of support stimulates economic activity. It pushes inflation up, as I said. And fiscal policy is responsible for the inflation. Corporations didn't cause it, you know. Whatever the reason you want to throw in there is the cause for inflation is all down to fiscal policy. Milton Friedman, right? Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, right? You inject capital into an economy, you're going to get inflation. Now, though, there's a, you know, kind of this divergence that's happening because, again, the deficit is climbing because we're spending more and more money. But inflation is falling, and this has a lot to do with mathematical calculation of inflation, the year-over-year -year base effects, which we've talked about numerous times before. But it is also the fact that there's a steep drop right now in tax revenue combined with the fact you've got surging amounts of whatever revenue that is spent on, <laughs> being spent on interest on the debt. So we're having to issue a lot more debt. And don't forget, we also have the debt ceiling issue where we were spending money that we didn't have. And then when we raised the debt ceiling, we had to go issue a bunch of debt to refund all that spending. So 
we're spending a lot of money, but it's not on anything that is a productive investment or, again, sending checks to households is not productive, but it's not stimulative in terms of short-term economic activity boost. We're just spending more money. And again, you know, we've talked about this before. Every time you increase, well, let me, let me back that up. As we said before, every time that we lift the debt ceiling, which is what I meant to say, we just kind of look at that as, okay, well, we've agreed to this amount of spending and we had our debt ceiling, so we're just going to lift the debt ceiling so we can just, and this is the argument that's always given, right? This is money we've already agreed to spend, so we're going to lift the debt ceiling so that, you know, we can spend the money that we already agreed to spend. And so everybody just kind of fluffs it off. It's like, okay, it was money we already agreed to spend. What everybody forgets is, is that every time we lift these debt ceilings, we automatically increase government spending by 8%. On everything. Whatever your budget was last year, your budget's now 8% more this year. And that's why the deficit just keeps growing. And we keep spending more and more and more debt. It's because every time we, since we don't have a budget, we haven't passed a budget since Obama was in office. In fact, the last budget we had was under George Bush. Since then, we've relied on continuing resolutions to increase the spending rate. We, list, we, we do a continuing resolution. We lift the debt ceiling. We agree to authorize so much in debt for the next period or two to get us past the next election or past the next midterm, whatever it is that is politically intolerable that we don't want to deal with. So we do a continuing resolution with enough money to push us past that. We never get there before we run out of money again, right? Because we're still spending too much money and the resolution is never big enough to get us there. So we wind up in another day. We have another potential government shutdown coming next month. But none of this is productive spending. More debt, less economic growth, less economic growth, less inflation. The largest spending increase, as of recent, has been paying interest on the debt, which is now surging. Government spending on and this, so let me just read to you from the Wall Street Journal once again. Government, so because you, you don't believe me, I'll just get it to you from the Wall Street Journal because that's obviously the source of truth. Government spending. I say that tongue-in-cheek, on interest on the debt has risen $136 billion, or 23%, as higher interest rates increase to the cost of borrowing. Neither lower capital gains tax receipts nor higher debt payments feed directly back into the economy into the short term. And neither do other reasons for the mushrooming deficit, such as roughly $100 billion in reduced Federal Reserve earnings as a result of higher rates. What does the Federal Reserve have to do with federal revenue? Oh, that's that whole balance sheet issue. If you didn't know this, we have a funny little accounting game that goes on in government. Government needs to issue more money. Right? Government, government wants to spend more money. They need to issue more debt. Right? So, okay, great. So they go to the Treasury. The Treasury issues bonds. Bonds go out into the world. Now, this is from 2008 to 2021-ish, 22-ish. Bonds go out to the world, and then the Federal Reserve says, yeah, I'm going to buy those bonds, right? This is quantitative easing. Federal Reserve buys that bond, puts it on their balance sheet. Now, 
the government then makes an interest payment on those bonds. So the Treasury makes the interest payment on that debt. That interest payment is an expense to the government, right? Feeds into the deficit. So deficits go up because we're making what? More interest payments. Who makes the interest payments? Treasury Department. Who collects the interest payment? Well, the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve has revenue from the interest payments on the debt that is made by the government. Now, I want to read to you this sentence again. Neither lower capital gains, tax receipts, nor higher debt payments feed directly back into the economy in the short term. Neither do other reasons for the mushrooming deficit, such as roughly the $100 billion in reduced Federal Reserve earnings. Because, see, every year during quantitative easing, the Federal Reserve would remit those interest payments back to the government as revenue. Now, think about that again. The circular logic of this accounting mechanism. Interest from the debt is paid to the Federal Reserve, which, by the way, that interest income is part of your corporate profit calculation. So when you look at corporate profits, yes, the Federal Reserve balance sheet, that interest income from the Federal Reserve balance sheet is part of your corporate profits, which are then remitted back to the government who then counts them as revenue. All they did was collect back their own dollar. government math at work point is none of that creates economic growth that's why rising deficits and more debt lead to slower economic activity when it's not used productively all right wrap up show i'm gonna come back we're gonna talk a little bit about dei interesting study out from harvard written up in the new york times about the value of dei don't go away Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to the show this morning. So, lately there's been a lot of companies coming out and um, really pushing a lot the diversity, equity, inclusion Kind of programs. In fact, there's some companies that have gotten tagged lately because they've come out basically saying, hey, if you're white, don't even apply, right? Just don't even submit your resume. We're not interested. And the question, you know, is, is always is, you know, you know, what's the big push here? What, what's the reason? Why, why, if I'm looking at candidates for a job, right? Uh, in fact, an uh, airline just recently, you know, wants more diversity in their um, in their airlines. So when they're hiring pilots, if you're white, don't, don't apply. Now, is that really what you want, right? I mean, if I'm getting onto an airplane, I want the best person, male, female, I don't care, right? But I want the best person flying the airplane. I don't care what race, religion, creed they are. I want, I want to get to where I'm going safely. You know, I want the very best person doing that job. So, you know, I've been asking myself the question lately. I'm like, why why are companies doing this? What's the benefit to them, right? Because they don't care. The, the companies don't really care about 
diversity, equity, inclusion, all these type of things. They, they want to make money, right? They want to, whatever it is that they do, they want to make more money. And, and it's about corporate profitability at the end of the day. So what's, when, what's the big reason? What's the big push? And obviously there's a lot of social pressure, you know, government pressure, et cetera, to do this, a lot of media pressure to do this. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the CEO has to be looking at their bottom line going, am I making the best decision for my company? You know, Disney, Target, Anheuser-Busch obviously fell into that trap. But there's a really great study out that answered, kind of gave me some background, I guess, to answer that question. Or at least put a theory together about why companies are doing what they're doing. Uh, it's in the New York Times, and so the the title of the article. I don't have time to go through the the, the whole article. It's it's about five pages. Uh, I just highlighted some bullet points here. So there's some stuff in here that's worth reading to to put together your own conclusions. But it's called the downside of diversity, and um, it was a study that was done. Now this article was written in 2007. I had to do a bunch of digging to find this thing. But it was a study that was done with 30,000 people. And what they found was, is that demographic trends, again, look, demographic trends are already kind of pushing the nation, right? We, we, you know, we, we've talked about the, the low birth rates in the, in the economy, and we're, and we're pushing ideas in the economy. Again, you know, the idea of marriage for Gen Xers is falling. Right, you know, the, the idea of being married to one person and settling down and having a family, et cetera, those kind of trends are going on the downside, which leads to lower birth rates. And again, if you want to have strong a strong economy, you need a strong birth rate. Japan is a good example of kind of that pathway that we're headed down. Immigration also is one of the, the kind of key drivers. But here's what the study found. The, stu the, the study was, was a kind of a fascinating issue. It says diversity makes us uncomfortable, right? But discomfort, as it turns out, isn't always a bad thing. Unease with difference helps explain why teams of engineers from different cultures may ideally be suited to solve a vexing problem. Right. Culture clashes can produce a dynamic give and take, given uh, generating solutions that may have eluded a group with similar backgrounds. And that makes complete sense. Right. People with different views, different backgrounds may approach a problem differently. So diversity within a group of people makes complete sense. However, uh, so so this study was done by Robert Putnam. Uh, he was famous for his book called Bowling Alone. And he, what he found was, though, is that greater diversity in a community, the fewer people vote and the less they volunteer. Charitable donations decline. In, in cities where there are a very diverse group of people, they donate to charities less. They're less cohesive. In areas where there's a high homogenistic population, charitable uh, donations are higher. They're more, they're more cohesive. Let me just continue for what, what the article says. In, in the most diverse communities, neighbors trust one another about half as much as they do in most homogenous settings. The study is the largest ever on civ civic engagement in America found that virtually all measures of civic health are lower in more diverse settings. Now, Again, the article is very good. Um, 
and again, it, you just it, you have to dig for it a little bit on the internet to find it. But the the point is, is that why are companies pushing for this? Now, this is my theory. Okay, so again, we, we can all d debate this, and this is what makes a market. This is what makes an economy. We always have to have different views and, and different things. But I've been, you know, pondering this idea a lot lately about why this big push over the last couple of years, you know, in, in particular, really since 2020, we've had this massive surge of pushes into, you know, uh, ESG and DEI and all this. And it's like, so, so the question is why? What's the benefit for these companies? So if a group that is diverse is less homogenistic, that reduces the potential for corporations to have to deal with unions. What do unions bring, right? Uh, we've just recently watched, you know, UPS and a couple of other unions. In fact, we're about to have to deal. I think we're going to have to deal with an auto worker strike here fairly soon. Uh, strike going on in California with the Writers Guild. And what are they all demanding? Higher pay. So in companies that are fighting for profitability, how do companies manufacture profitability in, in today's environment? Because as we've talked about before, the evidence is clear. Since 2008, revenue growth for, com oh, sorry, revenue growth, what happens at the top line, right? That's the, that's the dollar of sales that come in at the top line of the business has grown about 100% on a cumulative basis since 2008, a little bit more. It's like 104 Corporate profitability, though, earnings, right, reported earnings are up about 400%. So how do you generate a 400% profit margin on a dollar's worth of sales? Cumulative, right, over time. And that's because you have to come up with ways to cut cost, increase productivity, and reduce wages. I mean, that's what it all comes down to. And so what do unions, what, so if, if a homogenistic group tends to be more cohesive within a corporation, they're going to tend to band together. That's, it makes unions easier to form. A more diverse group of people, if the study is correct, right, and we have to assume that it is, but if the study of 30,000 people show that more diverse groups of people are less, you know, less likely to look out for each other, more about themselves rather than anybody else, it means the risk of unionization falls, right? Which allows companies to suppress wages and then use other measures to increase productivity and, 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 and um, output. So again, it's just a very interesting study. And, and, and look, it doesn't answer all the questions that go into this about why companies are pushing in a manner rather than hiring the best candidates for the jobs. You know, we're, we're hiring to solve some social out, you know, kind of social score, so to speak. And that was something that they even brought up talking about this. Putnam claims that the U.S. experienced a pronounced decline in social capital. And that's even a term he helped popularize. Right. Social capital. We've heard a lot about this lately. Social capital refers to the social networks, whether it be friendships, religious congregations or neighborhood associations, which are. And this is what he says. Now, look, Putnam is a very liberal person and, and, and he supports very liberal causes. In fact, 
you know, at the time that he was releasing this article, he was having a hard time coming to terms with the results of this study because it went against all of his, his beliefs as a liberal person. But what he said was, and this is key, and you can take a look at this in, in the data that we've seen lately on people's views on religion and family and these type of things. Again, marriage. They're all in steep decline. Social capital, whether friendships or religious congregations or neighborhood associations, he says, are key civics to civil well-being. When social capital is high, communities are better places to live. Neighborhoods are safer, people are healthier, and more citizens vote. So when you kind of take a look at the world around us today, I think it's quite interesting that we've been pushing this diversity, equity, inclusion, right? And things haven't gotten better. They're arguably worse. We were more divided as a country. You know, we have you know, a lot more problems than we had, you know, 20, even 20 years ago. People are less cohesive, right? Social capital is, is declining. So... You know, you feed that back into the loop of what's happening with corporations. It goes to answer some of those questions about why corporations are so supportive of these ideas, because it actually helps boost their bottom line at the end of the day. And again, there is a positive. You know, I, I don't want to, you know, not say that there's not a positive to diversity, equity and inclusion, which is simply, and this was even stated in the article, even after statistically taking them all into account, The image occurs that in companies that have large diversity, different ways of thinking among people and different cultures can be a boon. So there is a positive, provided all the candidates are qualified for the job. So interesting study. Again, downside of diversity, New York Times, 2007. Uh, maybe a little bit of history to think about where we are today. That's all I'm saying. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Have a great day. We'll be back here tomorrow. Danny Ratliff joining me. We'll get into more of your money tomorrow. Have a great day.